great to have the student band with us this morning. Yeah. So I want to just give you a little bit of a preparation here. In, uh, starting in June, has it been, when the high school and middle school youth ministry actually are going to be joining us um, in, this, in this service. They're actually changing their programming around. We've got some really great things that are happening. So when they start coming in in June, we're learning these songs right now. So when they look at us as, you know that song? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know that song. We can, just, we can actually just feel like we're just kind of cool or hip or whatever the words are now. We, oh, yeah, 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 we got that song down. We got that. So hopefully we'll, we'll get it down as we get closer to that time. And I'm really looking forward to that, too. They're saying that one of the things that is so true with a younger generation is that they're looking for mentors. Um, will you just give me some wisdom? Just kind of help me. And will you tell me I'm okay? And... Uh, will you just kind of uh, move with me through the uh, challenges of life? And uh, that's one of the gifts that God has given us as a congregation of all of these generations that we get to mentor each other and pray for each other and, and learn from one another. Right now we're going to learn from God's word. And so I would just like to um, just continue in the spirit of worship and ask God to um, work in our lives as we do this. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you that your word is living and active, that it's actually more than words on a page, but that your Holy Spirit actually can breathe life and light into my mind and into our minds right now, that you can actually download stuff that wasn't there before that is particularly relevant for each one of us, Lord, and that you can soften our hearts and make them open, uh, giving us the capacity to be able to say yes to things that perhaps we we didn't even know we needed to say yes to, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that as um, we continue to spend this time in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was at a conference a couple of years ago for a bunch of young church leaders. And many of them were church planting pastors. And with a conference of you know, a couple thousand people, there were all of these vendors that were out in the a foyer of the place, selling all kinds of things like software assessment things. And there's one particular table where they were actually selling promotional materials that you could take, put your name on the back of it, and send it out in your community to plant a church or get something started and kicked off. And I will never forget what I saw on the table, actually. There was a, must have been a five by seven, it was as big a postcard as you possibly could get. And on the back of it, it was red, and then there were two words, bright white, that stood out, um, and um, uh, ten, word, ten, ten letters. And the first word was church, so that's more than ten letters. And uh, the second word was a word we don't get to say in our family. Church sucks. That's it. So you can buy a whole bunch of these postcards, put your name on it, and you can send this out into the community and you can declare this reality that somehow will attract people to your group. And what are you going to call your group? Uh, uh, church? But not like that. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're not going to be, we won't be like them. So you start your own church, and, and, uh, but you're saying right at the get-go, we're not going to be like them. I actually hate that word. Um, and uh, my kids know I hate that word, but I hate what it says about the church more. 
I hate what we think, that we think it's a way to get a group together by declaring how bad the group is. How is it possible for us to be that way? And what is even more discouraging to me is I think there are times when I buy into that. I think that. I look around and I, I, I see that. What is it about this attitude that we have that, that allows us to go to that place? Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 talks about the character of the church and it's been described as the passage that is more descriptive of the church in action than any other passage in all of this book. What does it look like for the church to do? If love does, what does it look like for the church to do? And what does it look like for us to actually love the church? We need to know what it's about. So in Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read several verses from there. You have it on the cover of your uh, connect this morning. But I want to just read it out loud and then look at it. I'm taking the first three verses and then I'm taking what is essentially the last sentence. Verse 11 through 16, that's actually one sentence. In our translations, it's broken up because it's easier for us to understand. But when Paul did this, this is just one big closing sentence that he had. So the first three verses are the introduction to this. In verse 1 of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body. Then he goes on and talks about some other theological pieces of it. And then he gets us to his closing sentence of this paragraph in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God who became mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every kind of teaching or by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will, in all things, grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As you look at this paragraph, really, and it is a paragraph, even though it's subdivided in my translation into some uh, bits and pieces in it. This is essentially a paragraph, and it is brought together, you see, almost as bookends. The technical term for it is an ecclusio, uh, which is just kind of reminds us again of how brilliant Scripture is and the way it's carefully crafted and put together. In chapter 4, verse 2, there's a mention of what, what love is. This is what love does. And then you get to verse 16 and you see what love does at the end of it. You see it's at the very beginning and the end of it. It's like this is the, these are the bookends. This is about love. This is about love in action. This is about God's church being characterized by love that does. That's what that whole section is all about. There's also something else that's interesting. In all of Paul's um, time in this, uh, in, in, this, uh, in this letter, 
he has only one time before this ever mentioned to them something that they ought to do, an imperative, an appeal to do something. The only, only the second imperative in the whole letter is found right here in this chapter. And you say, I'm just so tired of people telling me what to do. This book isn't a book filled with things that are telling you what to do. It's telling you who he is. That's what it is. And then on occasion there, because of who he is, this is what it means to respond to it. And so it's only the second time he actually even says to us, and this is how we ought to act as a result of it. It's only the second time he's mentioned it. And you see what he says here? To live a life, I urge you, he says, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says, it only makes sense. It's kind of like you've heard that person say, are you happy? Uh, yeah, I'm happy. Well, would you tell your face? <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it, it, it's got to fit together here. You, you've got this glorious calling, so live like it. And that's what he's appealing to us to do. If, if you've been loved, and if you have love for God, what does love do here? This isn't addressed to religious professionals either, by the way, is this is what you ought to do as part of your management of the church body. This is all of us as followers of Jesus in a family together doing all of these things with one another for a purpose. And so what we see here is that the appeal is based on what Paul's already said in chapters 1 through 3. It's appeal to God's grace. Read through chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you see over and over again, for by grace have you saved, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We've been made to do wonderful things. But it's all about God's grace and his salvation. And that's the whole setup for this whole thing. This, this appeal that God has to us to live a life in a particular thing is based on this. God is a good, good father. God is, a, God is someone who it is easy to love. And he invites us into a faith that begins and ends with deep affection for him. That's what our faith is. It begins with deep affection for God and it ends with deep affection for God. All else is fabricated and frail. Any other definition of faith that's based on anything other than deep love for God himself is either a fabrication or a failed construct, a frail construct. It is about faith in a God who loves us and whom we love. Paul spends half of his letter dropping this anchor and making sure we know that. That's the stake in the ground. So what we were doing with communion here this morning he loved us so much, he died for us. So there it is, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. And then, as a consequence of this reality, Paul says, for us to walk in a certain way of life. Actually, he even uses that word walk. He uses it in chapter, in, in chapter 4, verse 1. He uses it in verse seven, he, 17. You get to chapter 5, verse 2, he mentions the same word, to walk. In verse 8 of chapter 5, he says walk. In chapter 5, verse 15, he says to walk. And there are other things he says as well, too. But it's all based on his grace, his salvation. And then we get into, well, what are the consequences of this? How is love expressed? What love does and how it's expressed happens in the context for a follower of Jesus Christ, for a believer in Jesus Christ, that love happens in the context of a particular place. 
a group of people. And it's called the church. Love does is what our series is about. Church does. Church is the means by which God's kingdom comes, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not some ambiguous, amorphous, philosophical concept out there. It's actually a group of people that get together in a room. Hmm, just like this. All over this city, all over this nation, all over this world. That's it. That's how we do. That's how his kingdom comes. And his will is done. It happens in the context of a group. Now, we're not talking about a building. We're not talking about a 501c3. We're talking about something different than that. So that's what I want to go with the rest of our time together. I actually want to ask three questions to draw attention to what Paul is talking about right here in these verses. And the first one is this. Okay, so what is the church? What is it? It's the means by which his kingdom comes on earth And he's described it using other forms in different places. He uses the term, the church is the body. The church is the body of Christ. So Jesus dies, is resurrected from the dead, and he goes to heaven, and he says, you will remain here, and you will be me. You will be the body of Christ, the church which is his body. That's us. Jesus says, I intend for you to be Jesus. And there will be expressions of the reality of Jesus on 8801 Knoll, down the hill, down 87th Street. All of these representations of Jesus, these manifestations of the reality of who Jesus is. That's who we are. That's what it means to live out in our, in our uh, 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 vision statement, life in Christ. To bring every person to life in Christ That life in Christ occurs, is built, is strengthened, is made mature in the context of us being together with each other. One of the ways that we we define how we're doing around here in regards to that is we're using the directions up and, and out. Life in Christ is about devotion and worship to God, an upward uh, perspective. He is good and he is worthy of our worship, as Clarissa was saying as we were worshiping together this morning. That's who he is. And then there's this out piece, and we talked about this last week especially, what it means to go to be outward focused and to be part of his kingdom coming in the world. But it's not only up and out, it's also in. That's one of the pieces of it. It, it is in, it is us being Um, brought together, all of us helping each other to reach maturity. That's what it says right here, so that we would all, he gives us all of us, he gives us each other, it says, so that the body of Christ, verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity and maturity in the spirit. Perhaps you've heard me share this example before, but it really is helpful. It's as if we're, let's pretend we're a class in grad school. And a uh, big class, and uh, the professor comes in and says, it's time for the final exam. And we're all nervous about whether we're going to make a significant grade or not. And the professor, and so we've been studying on our own and working as hard as we could. And then the professor says, I'm going to do the grade a little bit different this time. I'm not grading straight up and down. I'm not grading on a curve. Here's what I'm going to do. There's going to be one grade in this class, and you will all receive it. 
And that grade will be the grade of the person who has the weakest exam. Whoa. I mean, first of all, you say, hey, that's not fair. And then you say, who, who's in trouble? Because we're going to all be there for you because you're us. <laughs> that's the way the church is. Until we all, we don't say, hey, you stink over there. It's, you're me. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Look around this room and see you. Uh, I mean that. You, you younger folks, look around and you see you. Those of us that are older, look around and see you. It's, it's us. That's what, what the church is. And, and uh, you know, you say, well, there's an there's a apostle and a prophet and the evangelist. And I'm not the evangelist, and we've been talking about evangelism here. But did, did you see what, what he's saying an evangelist actually does in this context? I and mean, we get this idea of itinerant evangelists. It wasn't true back then. Timothy was actually described as an evangelist. And you know what Paul tells Timothy to do? Go to the church at Ephesus and build the church up. Well, you're an evangelist. Yes, build the church up. What does an evangelist do? He creates an energy for and a capacity to do evangelism. The whole church does it. He gives those so that we all reach maturity. Don't, don't, don't take any of these things and push them aside and say, Would you, we need a couple volunteers to do this particular one. No, no, we do it together. That's what an evangelist is called to. We actually do this thing uh, as who we are. And, and this is the miracle. <laughs> because you look at it and you say, man, I hope there's somebody else out there that was a first-round draft choice because I just, I just don't have any capacity. And, and you look at the church Jesus pulled these disciples to, and he did not have one first-round draft pick. We know those stories. And yet Jesus took that collection of mistakes and impulses and, and mess-ups, and he says, you're going to be it. And here's the good news. It's not going to be about you. It's going to be about my, my Holy Spirit living in you. That's going to be the miracle. And throughout history, it has been the miracle. I mean, you look at it. Ken Stark wrote this book on, on the marvel of the church and how an obscure, marginalized, kind of a uh, religious group of people actually became the dominant faith in the whole world. And how did he use it? How did he do it? Not through first-round draft picks through his spirit, working in people just like us. <laughs> That's exactly the way he does it, through you. That, that's, that's it. That's what the church is. Someone says, okay, Jesus, I'm looking at this group. Do you have a plan B? And... And Paul says, there is no plan B. This is the way he is going to 
bring his kingdom into the world. You know, and there's this, I think sometimes in the scorn of the church, there's an ignorance in regards to the church and what it accomplished. When we were involved with Katrina, many of you were just jumped in, and we sent a batch of over 100 people down to the New Orleans area to love on and care for and help rebuild homes. And somebody in our congregation had a conversation with someone on the plane who was with FEMA. And the person from FEMA says, you know, we've just been, we've just had it handed to us. We, we didn't even realize how, how incapable we are and how incredibly capable the church is. The church uses money like no one else does. They actually use it for the people on the ground. The church jumps in and share people. These people share their hearts and their lives and they're connected with them. He says, we have to write this into the next disaster. That's what they said because they saw what the church was doing in places like that. And we go to places, strife-torn places all over the world and you see God's people walking in first at the danger of life and possibly squandered resources, but they're there building medical units and facilities and educational pieces. We're seeing this happen in Kathmandu right now. It's what the church does. I'm not saying here that all of those people out there that don't know about us should love us. I'm saying we should love us. We should. Not, hey, let's love ourselves as some love fest that way, but friends, this is what the Holy Spirit does through his church, and he loves his church. Kevin Harney actually, in his book, Organic Outreach, talks about criticism of the church, and he says, you know, there's another expression for the way the church is, that it's not only the body of Christ, it's also described as the bride. In the book of Revelation, you see these descriptions of bride, and he says this in one of his chapters, and some of us have been reading that, and Kevin was here a while ago, but in this chapter, talking about loving the church, he actually talks about, can you imagine being at a wedding and watching the bride go down the aisle and have everybody look at her and say, what a mess she is. Couldn't she have thought a little more clearly about picking better music? Or look what she's wearing. Ah, oh, I can't believe she would do, you know, I mean, and he says, that's just kind of crazy to do that. But Kevin goes on to say, this is what we do with God's church. We, we do this. Uh, and, and, and as a body, can you believe us saying to each other as we introduce somebody, hey, I'm glad to see you, but watch out for my ear here. Last week it was deaf as could be. And watch out for it. No, it's, 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 it's the body. And um, and. and we are us. So that's what the church is. The second question is, what is my attitude? And this is a personal question. What is your attitude? What's my, Mark Severson's attitude towards the body, towards the church? What is your attitude towards the church? Do you often cut down other parts of the church? Do you ever cut down your own community? What is that attitude? And Paul really wants to correct this thing where we say, well, I'm thankful I'm not like them. <laughs> you know, those people that are part of the church, what an embarrassment they are to our church. What a, what a shame. Did you see what they did? 
And Paul just brings us right back and he corrects us and he talks about what it means for us to walk in a, with a life worthy of his calling. And he mentions here humility, gentleness, patience, what could be described as tolerant love and peacemaking. And I want to just look at those before I ask you to consider three questions as we conclude. If we're going to accomplish our mission, if we're going to be God's hope for the world in this place, we've got to love this place and what this church is. Humility is a part of it. Where humility, Klein Sodgrass has said this, is an understanding of God's work is always an attack on the ego. That's what humility is. It's an attack on my ego. And when I understand God's work, my ego will always be attacked. It is so easy for us to look around, isn't it, and see where other people fall short. Someone said recently, it's ironic in a society that is plagued with pornography and the subsequent human trafficking that is a direct outcome of that pornography and the prevalence of pornography across the board in our nation and even among us. And yet somehow we have the capacity to look at others' stuff and say, I know what the Bible says about that. And the humility in us says about perhaps that or some other thing that maybe God hasn't even pointed out to us yet about what he wants us to become has got to drive us to the point where we live our life among each other with a humility that slays the ego and depends on our Savior. Humility is held up in all of Paul's letters as a necessary component of Christian living. Are my actions marked by humility around here and around you? Are my words marked by humility in regards to God's church? Is my service marked by humility? How do I speak? What do I say? What do I point out? If Christ is to live here, then egos must die here. If Christ is to live here, then egos must die here. And then Paul goes on after he talks about humility. He goes on to talk about subsequent loving relationships. He speaks of gentleness here. How will my words be received by you? Are they life-giving? You see, our responsibility, even as we talk among each other, is not to say the truthful thing, but to be careful how it lands. How does it land? Will it land and be life-giving? That's what gentleness is about. You say, well, I just speak my mind. That's just who I am. Not here. Not here. We must think of what's on their mind. What will happen when they receive this note? What will happen when they hear my words? What will happen when I look them in the eye? Is there a gentleness that accompanies that? And then there's patience. And Chrysostom has said it's the exercise of largeness of heart that can endure annoyances and difficulty over extended periods of time. <laughs> Don't you just love that? <laughs> patience, the exercise of largeness of heart that can endure annoyances and difficulties over a long period of time. And we get into this love, which is really tolerant love. It's putting up with each other affectionately. 
building up one another, bearing each other's burdens, encouraging each other. We, we've heard those words. You know, do you really think that the person you're talking to doesn't already know their flaws? Do you think they don't? Perhaps what they need to know is that they're still loved and they're cared for. And then peacekeeping. Around here, we've actually constructed something called the behavioral covenant that as leaders, we, we commit to with one another. I will not say anything about you to another person until I've said something to you. It builds trust. That's what Paul was talking about here with peacekeeping. What love does is actually pretty simple. Love does humility. Love does tolerant love. Love does peacekeeping. Love does patience. Love does gentleness. It is not rocket science. But it's a way that God moves forward. So then we come to the end of this and we ask the question, well, what is our calling? And I want to encourage you to consider three possibilities as you pull out this um, form and you ask yourself, okay, what is my next step? There are three categories in which I think it could, and it comes from actually the last sentence, verses 11 through 16. The first is to keep yourself and us focused on Christ. His cause and his calling. Walk in a manner worthy of his calling. What is it? To live a life worthy of the calling you receive and keep that front and center, keep that the only thing. And we've described it here as Hillcrest. We believe that God has called us to it and it is to bring every person to life in Christ. It's congruent with this and it's clear for us to bring every person to life in Christ. Someone has said that if there's no cause to fight for, a group begins to fight against itself. If there's no cause to fight for, a group begins to fight with itself. We have a cause to fight for, to bring every person to life in Christ. That means every effort, every adjustment, every sacrifice is focused on that. Someone last week told me about a church that they were out in in California, and it was during the Jesus People movement, and uh, they said, you know what our church struggled with? We had beautiful, brand-new carpet in our building, and all of these 20-somethings were coming out off the beaches with sand in their feet, and they wanted to worship with us. And we had to decide whether we would give up our carpet and accept the sand or um, invite them to go someplace else. I remember my church growing up, we eventually incorporated guitars into the worship service on Sunday morning. Don't think that didn't come without a struggle. Keep yourself focused on Christ and his calling. What does it mean for me to make the only thing, the only thing, the main thing, the main thing, and to keep bringing it up in my mind over and over again. Who are we, what we are about, to bring every person to life in Christ. Okay, now let's start the conversation. Now let's put a strategy together. And then the second thing is this, to take your role as a supporting ligament. In verse 16, that's what it talks about. Each one of us will be a supporting ligament. It supports, it strengthens, and it's connected to something else. What will it be for you to love the church so that the church becomes a supporting ligament? And by the way, you know all of those things that you see in either this church family or the church family you're part of if you're visiting with us, those things you see and you know, boy, that should be changed. 
Maybe that's how you know what your point place is in the place. Not to be able to say, you know, that needs to change, but to say, hmm, I guess God's given me a heart for that, and I'm going to jump in and actually be a supporting ligament in regards to that thing changing in a way that allows us to bring every person to life in Christ. To be a supporting ligament. Do you know we had so many kids in the nursery last Sunday that we were overwhelmed by kids and didn't have enough people there to take care of the kids? What a wonderful problem to have. We now have more children in our preschool than we have in our elementary school. God is doing something here at Hillcrest in that regards. We're seeing stuff happen in youth ministry. You guys, uh, you are modeling this and you are, you are, you are uh, welcoming people in. There are things that are happening, right? But, uh, and then there are parents that are coming in and say, I've got my precious baby with me and it doesn't look like you're ready for me. Let's be supporting ligaments. I know someone you can talk to if that's a possible way that you want to jump in on that. Take your role as a supporting ligament because what people want to see as they walk in this place, they want to experience something more than they want to know something. They want to experience us actually being loving towards one another. And then the third thing is this, to actually love his church, to develop a stronger affection for it. And that might be your takeaway. God, give me a stronger affection for your church. It might mean walking down the halls, walking, uh, uh, looking around, visiting groups, and just saying, God, fill me with love for this. Fill me for love for this. When Beth and I were early married, you know, there are things that you always have conflict about. One of them is uh, money, and another one of them is in-laws. And we were in the midst of the in-law bit. And this particular day, it wasn't me with Beth's family, although those days happened. It was Beth with my family. And she was saying, you know, I love your family, but... And I said to her, you know, I'm not saying my family is always easy to love, and I know it's not, but... Are, are you sure when you say you love my family that right now you, you're feeling it? Because it just doesn't seem like it. And she said, it's one of the things I just love about Beth. She says, wow. And you know what Beth did? She turned everything around. She started loving my family in ways that I just couldn't believe. The affection, the investment, the time, and the grace, and she realized, you know, I was saying those words, but I wasn't living it out. I think that's what God wants for you in regards to his church. For me in regards to his church. For us in regards to his church. To more than say the words, to live it out. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and the parts that belong to you, you would now bring into our hearts as we spend this time singing and worship. God, continue to talk to us and give us guidance and direction and hope. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.